pretty cool, isn't it? I like that. That was great. Hey, uh, it's uh, good to be back with you uh, at the South Street campus. For those of you that haven't met, my name is Joe Scavato, one of the pastors here. And uh, it's always a pleasure to spend some time in worship with you all. Uh, I do have one uh, just quick announcement I wanted to share with you, just from my family to your uh, church family. Uh, My wife, Judy, and I are excited to share that we are expecting our second child. And uh, we're very thrilled about that. Thank you. Uh, She's due uh, at the end of March, and she is feeling lousy. And so you can be praying for her as she deals with that. Uh, speaking of that, let's, let's uh, pray one more time as we open up God's Word together. Father, would you uh, just speak to us now? Lord, we ask that you would encourage us with your Word, that you would reveal your truth to us from, from these holy words that we're going to be reading. Speak to us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Uh, I'm curious if you can think of a time uh, in your life recently where you've used the phrase, or if you've had this phrase used against you, uh, the truth hurts. Recently, I was uh, thinking back to the first time I ever did this, the, the first message I ever gave. I had just graduated from college. I was doing a student ministry internship. I was 22 years old, and uh, my, my youth pastor that I was working for gave me my very first teaching assignment. And in my mind, this message was going to change people's lives. Like, I spent so much time and effort preparing this. I had this big altar call planned. I had the works. And I went up there, and I embarrassed myself for 20 minutes. It was terrible. And not terrible in like a, I am a humble person. It wasn't that, no, like it was objectively bad. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever done your job poorly in front of 100 middle school students, uh, but the thing that I like about you guys is that I'm sure there are, there are times where I have lost you along the way, and, and at least you pretend, right? Like, you pretend that you're still with me, and I appreciate that. Just for my ego, let's keep it that way. You don't have to tell me if it was terrible. I don't need to hear that. But middle school students are, are quite the opposite. And so I got two pieces of feedback after that message that I gave. The first was from my boss, from the, the youth pastor I was working for, and he was so encouraging. And so life-giving, he, he and I, we both knew it wasn't any good, but, but he was so gentle in pointing out things that I could have done better. The second piece of feedback was from one of our students who came to me and said, are you getting paid to be here? <laughs> Which is just devastating from a 12-year-old girl. That's, that has stayed with me. The truth has never hurt as much as it did that day, it's safe to say. But I share that with you because today we are kicking off a new series that you just saw called Faith Works. And what we're going to be doing for the next nine or so weeks is looking through the book of James. And if you've studied the book of James, you know this, that we're going to be hearing words and hearing from someone that does not pull any punches. Someone that does not waste any time. Someone that will simply tell us the truth, even if it makes us uncomfortable and it makes us wrestle a little bit, and even if it hurts. And our goal as a church is to look at this letter and examine the type of faith that we see written about, a faith that is effective, a faith that is strong, that perseveres, a faith, in other words, that works. Now, before we dive in today, a few notes on the book itself. James, the author, was the half-brother of Jesus. He shows up a few times throughout the Gospels, notably a couple times in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 6, he's listed as one of Jesus' brothers. They are talking about Jesus and his ministry, and they say, isn't this the carpenter? 
the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And one thing that's notable about James and about all of his siblings is that they did not believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Mark 3 tells us this, that that when his family heard this, this is Jesus' claims about himself, they set out to restrain him because they said, he is out of his mind. Now, those of us who have a brother, we have to have a little bit of sympathy, don't we? Do you know what it would take for me to claim that my brother is the Messiah and I am his servant? And yet, how does James begin this letter? James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see him show up throughout the New Testament, not just as a follower, a servant, but as one of the key leaders in the early church. Just think about that for just a moment. That one of the first skeptics, One of the earliest doubters, someone who claimed that Jesus was crazy, became one of the earliest pastors, the most influential leaders, someone whose Holy Spirit-empowered words we still read today. How can we account for that? Helpfully, uh, Paul tells us that part of the story. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is talking about all the people that Jesus showed up to post-resurrection. He says that he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Can you imagine that conversation? Jesus, the, the one that he grew up with, the one that he called out of his mind, the one that he ridiculed and doubted and refused to believe, showing up at his doorstep. Scars on his hands. Risen from the dead. This is where faith begins for James and for us. An encounter with the risen Christ. This is the type of faith that we're going to be looking at these next few months, a faith that impacts and changes dramatically not just our identity and who we are, but also our lifestyle and what we do, the way that we live our lives. Now, quickly, a bit about just the breakdown of this letter. We're going to be covering James 1 uh, this week and next week. In James 1, you can kind of think of it as the table of contents for this letter. So James is going to be introducing all of the main ideas that he's going to be doing deeper dives into in chapters 2 through 5. So today, we're not going to cover every word and every idea in detail, but anything that we miss, rest assured, we will be covering in the following weeks. And so today, we're just going to focus on a, a few descriptions and a few areas where effective faith matters. We're going to look at faith in the midst of trials, faith in the midst of temptation, and faith in the word of truth. We'll start with faith in trials. Uh, Faith in trials. This is James chapter 1, the first four verses. It says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials— Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. 
I had a uh, basketball coach who would end every one of his practices the same way. He would make us run wind sprints across the gym, and then before we could leave, we had to make 10 free throws. I remember he, he would have us do this, and he would tell us that the reason that we were to do this drill is because he wanted us to be prepared. He wanted to simulate what it would be like at the end of a close game when we had to make a shot and when we were tired and didn't have any energy left. And I remember this because I was tired before the sprinting even began. But if you had seen us try to do that drill, you would have thought we had never played the game before. We couldn't make anything because we were just so worn out. We didn't have anything left. But what he was doing was trying to develop our physical and our mental endurance so that we would be ready when the real test came. And this is what James is getting at here. He's writing this letter to Jewish Christians that have been scattered all over the Roman world. That's the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. Maybe you saw that that we looked at. Many of them have been dispersed all over the world because of trials, because of persecution. Notice the word that he uses as he introduces this idea. Look again at verse 2 with me. He says, Consider it a great joy whenever you experience various trials. Not if, but when. Here's the first thing I want to point out to you. It's one that I doubt I'll need to do much convincing of to show you that it's true. That trials, suffering, are an inescapable part of living in a broken world. To be a follower of Jesus is not to get a get-out-of-trials-free card. It's not the promise of an easy life. And James is saying, because that is true, you need to be prepared. And this is what effective faith does. It trusts God, not just when things are easy, but when you are going through your most difficult moments. This is the mindset he's commanding us to have, that when we experience trials and suffering and pain, that we would consider it a great joy that we would be marked by joy even through hardship. Easy enough? Should we move on? No questions? No, of course we do. How unreasonable does this seem? How impossible does it seem? James, you want us to be joyful when we are suffering. How can I even begin to do that? How is it that I'm supposed to rejoice when I've just gotten the worst possible news from my doctor? How is it that I rejoice when I lose my job, when I don't know how my bills will get paid, when I see a world filled with brokenness, anxiety, abuse? How is it that when I feel like everything is falling apart, how am I supposed to look at these things and consider it joy? Notice this with me. Notice the the line that James is drawing, both the argument that he is making and also the one that he's not making. Notice that James is not saying that your trial, your sickness, your suffering, he's not saying that that is a good thing. He's not saying that it comes from God himself. It's so easy, I think, to to read this and think that, that, man, I just can't 
show any sort of frustration or any sort of anger or sadness. I just have to, to push it all down and put on my fake smile and pretend that everything's okay. That's not what he's saying. Scripture is filled with examples of people bringing those exact emotions, all of their sadness and anger, all of those things to him. And this is one of my favorite things about God is that he is big enough to handle it. What he is saying is this. Look again at verses 3 and 4. What he's saying is that if you want faith strong enough to withstand a trial, there are two things that you need to do. You need to understand the process and change your perspective. We see this in our text, that that God in his goodness and wisdom does not cause evil, but that he uses it and redeems it. That just like my coach would use our exhaustion to produce something in us, that God will use the trials in our lives to do the same. It is the testing of your faith that produces endurance. It's that idea of endurance. Your, your translation might say perseverance. It's that that we need in order for our faith to grow, to become mature and complete and lacking in nothing. Isaiah chapter 48 uses the image of a refining fire, the way that, that any sort of impurity, anything that doesn't belong in a precious metal would be stripped and melted away. Look at what he says. He says that I have refined you. Not as silver, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. So if you want to experience joy, even in the middle of a trial, this is where you begin. By remembering that God has not abandoned you, he is not punishing you, but rather he is strengthening your faith. His desire is so much more than your happiness. His desire is your holiness, that you would be mature and complete and lacking in nothing. And trials are an inescapable part of that process. It's difficult, isn't it? It's hard for us to have this perspective, isn't it? I think James knew that because in his very next verse, he starts talking about wisdom. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So if you lack wisdom, ask God. And what is wisdom if not seeing your life and your situation and your suffering through his eyes? This is what James is saying when he talks about being double-minded and unstable and the doubting man. Not that you can ever ask questions of God, not that you can never doubt if he's working or if he's good, but rather this is what true faith declares that, God, I am asking that you put an end to this trial. Bring healing. Bring restoration. Bring peace, whatever it is. But if you don't, I will not abandon you. I will still trust you. I will still follow you. I will still believe that you are doing something in my life 
even when I don't understand it. I know that for, for some of you, this idea of, of joy and trials, this is not a hypothetical situation, is it? This isn't just a, a curiosity, a theological discussion. This is real. I know that for, for some of us, right now, in this moment, we have loved ones that aren't doing so well. We have families that are fractured. We've experienced so much. Pain, abuse, anxiety, whatever it is. Just this week, I've sat with people who have marriages falling apart. People who lost a child to miscarriage. Prayed with someone who has a mother and a husband and a daughter all with cancer right now. I think about my own life, the things that, that we've been through. I think about losing my dad. And all the days where I did not experience joy. If that's you today, I, I don't think you need to beat yourself up or feel guilty. I think you can trust in the patient grace of God in your life. But this is what James is saying, is that if you are to persevere in trials, you need to understand what God is doing, but you also need to change your perspective. You need to look not only at your trial, but through it. You endure in suffering by keeping the end in mind. I shared earlier that, uh, that Judy is uh, pregnant, and, and we're excited about that, but there have been some really long days, especially for her recently. She hasn't been feeling well. She has a toddler to take care of. She has me to deal with. And yet we know that, that what's coming is going to make all of this worth it for her. That the joy that we'll experience, the love that we already have for this new life, we can see that, and that gives her strength. James tells us something really similar, actually. Look at uh, James 1, verse 12. It says, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The author of Hebrews picks up on this idea as well. Last summer, if you were with us, we looked at Hebrews 11, which is kind of this faith hall of fame. All of these people from what we call the Old Testament that, that displayed incredible faith throughout their lives. And, and what the author does after showing us all of these people's faith is that they point us to Jesus. Hebrews 12 says that, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance, and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, Do you see what, what they're trying to show us is that, that Jesus just like us, knows what it is to suffer. That he endured trials, that he put on the weight of sin, and he brought it all the way to the cross, and the thing that gave him strength to do so was joy. He saw joy ahead of him. He saw a perfect reunion with his Father, and he saw eternity with you if you have put your faith in him. And that was his strength. 
This is the nature of Christian hope, that suffering is a when and not an if. It is something that we all experience, but it is also a for now and not forever. If you have put your faith in him, this is as bad as it gets. We have hope of a day that is coming. No more cancer. No more miscarriage. No more poverty. No more abuse. No more. For now, we know that God will use and redeem trials to test us and refine us and strengthen us. But we know that there is a day coming where we will no longer need that strength because we will rest in him forever. This is the hope that we have. This is where we fix our eyes And in the meantime, we trust in his process, and we change our perspective, and we rejoice in the maturing of our faith. This is James' first point, joy in trials. We'll move on here and look at uh, faith in temptation. Uh, Earlier this year, I uh, did something I'd never done before. Uh, I went uh, fly fishing up in Montana. Has anybody ever gone fly fishing before? Okay, a few of us. Um, I'd never been. I'd only gone regular fishing a a handful of times, and my goal uh, was to catch one fish. We were gone for about eight hours. One fish seemed reasonable, and I had brought with me proof of my one fish. They said they didn't know there were fish that small in the river, which hurt my feelings a little bit. Um, I think the idea was to, to have this kind of relaxing day out on the river to get out into God's creation. Really what happened was it was confirmation uh, that I would never survive on my own. I was a terrible fisherman. Uh, I caught seaweed really well. I did not catch fish really well. My line was tangled for almost the entire day, uh, and it was not super great, but I caught one fish. Uh, but we had a guide with us who, who did most of the work, and, and with fly fishing, if you're not familiar, and if you are, and I'm saying this wrong, please forgive me, I only went once, um, but with fly fishing, the bait that you use is called, they're, they're called flies, and they're kind of these synthetic fake, they look like flies or insects or, or anything else that a fish might be interested in. And the guide would tell us to, to just keep casting your line out and keep casting, and eventually a fish will give in to this temptation that they're given. And, and interestingly, this is the image that James uses when he talks about temptation. Look with me to James chapter 1, verse 13. He says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So we see here uh, James moving from faith in the midst of trials, to faith in temptation. And what's interesting is he uses the same word for both words, trials and temptations. The idea being that both are challenges to our life of faith. But the difference, and this is what he wants us to see here, is the source. The trials are largely external things happening to us, and temptation is internal. Longings that we experience within ourselves. 
Look again with me to verses 13 and 14. He shows us this, that that no one should say, I am being tempted by God. God is not tempted by evil. He himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Those words, drawn away and enticed, that's language. That's the exact same language that my guide used with me in the boat that day. It's this picture of putting bait on a hook or, or setting a trap. That this is the nature of temptation. That the temptation doesn't just show up and drag you away. It's much more subtle than that. Temptation is an empty promise. It's a lie that the enemy has been telling, a, a trap he has been setting, a fly he has been casting from the very beginning. This is the lie that that you deserve fulfillment, pleasure, happiness in any way that you see fit because God won't give it to you. So go ahead and just eat that fruit in the garden. Temptation is the enemy offering you death and telling you that it is life. It's a lie that we are surrounded by each and every day, and this is what the text tells us, that true faith recognizes that there is something within me. I can't blame God. I can't blame my surroundings. I can't say that the devil made me do it. That this isn't for my neighbor or the person sitting next to me, that within my own heart, there is a longing that I feel to grab on to death because it says that it is life. I love James's solution. This is uh, what he says about having faith in the midst of trials. Verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. If today you have come here struggling in an area of temptation. Listen to James' words for you. Do not be deceived. Do not give in to this lie that you are being told. There is one source of good and perfect gifts. Fix your eyes, fix your hope, fix your life on your Father in heaven. Surround yourself with reminders of his goodness and his faithfulness and his provision for you. This is what wise people recognize, that behind every temptation that I face is a fear. If I'm being tempted to compare myself to another person and and compare myself to how much they have and the house that they have and the family that seems to be perfect, when, when I'm tempted to compare myself and be jealous and covet what they have, behind that temptation is fear that I am not enough, that I don't measure up. And faith takes that fear and it brings it to God, and God says, I have given you everything that you need because I am the giver of every good and perfect thing. We talked about this back in our Proverbs series. It's worth revisiting as we talk about temptation. Um, Maybe this is me. I don't know if you're like this, but, but I know for me, oftentimes I think that the fix to temptation is willpower. 
Have you ever done this? How many times have I looked at my life and said, you know what, I'm going to start eating better, or I'm going to be more patient, or I'm going to be more present, and I'm just going to do it. And for a few days, I'm just crushing it. I'm eating salads all the time, putting my phone away. It's, it's great. But then what happens is that your willpower starts to fade. And that temptation starts to become stronger. And that lure sure looks alluring, doesn't it? And before long, where are you? Back to square one. Thomas Chalmers, who was a uh, Scottish preacher back in the 1800s, wrote this about the way that followers of Jesus deal with temptation. He says that the best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, Christ. James is trying to show us this, that, that this is what faith does in the midst of temptation. It recognizes what is true and what is a lie. It understands that there is no temptation that is no big deal. It understands that everything, when it goes down the path, ultimately leads to death. We see this from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, writing this about temptation. He says that no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. You don't deal with trials and temptation the same way. With trials, you're told to, to endure it, to persevere, to stand strong with the power of God working through you. With temptation, you're told to flee. And you are assured that God has provided for you an escape route. This is God's desire for you. That in your temptation, you would find accountability. That in your struggle, you would memorize and, and encounter more of his word. That you would fix your eyes and your heart, not on your sin, but on your Savior. That you would understand more and more the beauty and excellence of Christ. And that that would overwhelm any other desire that you might have. This brings us to the last thing we'll cover today. We'll be quick here. Uh, faith in truth. Faith in truth. James 1, verse 18. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James is saying two things here, and, and this actually sets up the, the rest of our study in James really well. He's saying two things, that, that if you are a follower of Jesus, that you have been saved out of God's love, and that you have been set apart for his purposes. Notice this, James is saying that, that your salvation, your new birth, he calls it, your new life that you have been given, it did not come from you. It's not because you were good enough. Not because you were self-controlled, not because of your works. It came from the word of truth. It came from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, his message, his good news of the kingdom of God that he proclaimed. 
your new life is the ultimate example of what we just talked about, that God gives good and perfect gifts. This is John 3.16, that God loved the world, so he gave his only son. He did not need to save any of us. Not one of us were deserving. And yet in Jesus, we have this ultimate example of the love and goodness of God, the giver of every good thing. This matters for a lot of reasons, but this matters especially for those of us going through trials or struggling in temptation, because when we do, how easy is (coughs) is it for us to ask ourselves, God, are you still with me? Have you abandoned me? Have you forgotten about me? No, he has not. And this is the proof. We look to the cross. We look to the gift that he has given us, new life, incredible grace. We were not worthy. We've been saved by God's love. Here's the second thing, that that if you've received this new life, then you have become a kind of first fruit This is uh, Old Testament language. We see this in Exodus chapter 23. The idea was um, that that before the harvest, the people of God were to set aside their best for him. This kind of sacrifice, this act of worship. And James is saying is that that is you. You are dedicated to him. Your life is for his purposes. It is to be an expression of worship to your God. And this is what James's letter is going to be about. The fact that God cares deeply about where you'll spend eternity, but he also, spent, he also cares about how you spend your time on earth. He cares deeply about the words you use, the way you love your neighbor, even your thoughts. All of it matters to him. I hope you join us. It's going to be a great series. There's a lot that's going to stretch us The truth might hurt, but we know that it comes from God. We're going to close today's service uh, by responding, by celebrating communion together. In just a moment, the ushers will come around and pass the elements uh, to your pew. And as they do, I just want to give you this chance and encourage you to take this time to reflect, to pray, to have a moment with the giver of every good gift. Take this time to consider the things that God has done that he is doing in your life. Consider the blessings he has given you, but also consider the way he's worked in your life through trials. His faithfulness, even in temptation. Here at Chapel Street, we believe that this table is not ours, but God's. It's open to all who have been given that new birth that we just talked about. If you've put your faith in him, you are welcome to participate in this moment together. And so let's take this time to have a moment with God, and then I'll come back up and we'll partake together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you now grateful for your love, grateful for your faithfulness, grateful that you are the giver of every good gift. Father, help us now to reflect on the ultimate proof of that, the sacrifice that we remember every time we take this bread and we take this cup. God, we worship you. Allow our lives to be an expression of that now. We pray this in your name. Amen.
told on the night <clears throat> that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples, and he took the bread, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Drink and remember me. Amen. Again, thank you for joining us today. So good to worship together as a church family. Would you receive now today's benediction? Would you go in the grace, the wisdom, the faithfulness, and the provision of a loving Father who walks with you. Amen.